Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Well, aside from a blonde Scandinavian Olympian high jumper on our roof, who else could it be? Today we are discussing signs. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan, and uh, this is probably... This is one of the big chunk of movies from Shyamalan that I just I've never seen. I, I guess I should take that back. I've seen the beginning credits of this movie, <laughs> and that's as far as I've gotten before today or whatever I watch this. Well, yeah. So they're they're pretty good opening credits, like with that opening score by James Newton Howard. So yeah, did you uh, did you not have a choice to finish it, or how did you just see opening credits and nothing else? Ah, uh, I forget why we stopped it. Too scary by the music? I think that was part of it, but it <laughs> wasn't me who chose that. It was, oh, uh, I was, with, okay, I remember I was with my cousins. We were at their house and they popped it on because one of my cousins named Hayden really wanted to see it. I think okay. he'd seen it before or whatever. So we popped it on and then somebody else came up with, for, for one, this music is too scary. I don't want to watch this baby with my sister. And then another one was, here's another movie. Let's watch this one instead. And so after the opening credits and maybe one or two shots into the movie, we exchanged it for something else. So oh. yeah, I'm going in pretty much blind because even when I watched the credits, this, uh, when I watched it a couple of days ago, I'm just like, I don't remember this at all. Mm. So... So there yeah. you go. That's about as far as I've gone. That's about as much as I've as much as I've seen up until this point. I have seen signs. I want to say five times, possibly. I haven't really kept track. The first time I saw it was at a friend's house at the end of the summer, and they actually gave me the poster up for the movie. Oh wow! So I don't know why they had an extra one, but they gave it to me. So I, I, I own the poster and I, I think it's a great poster. I really like it. Yeah. And I saw it at their house and I was really intrigued and enthralled. And I don't really remember seeing it that much until I did get it on Blu-ray. I don't remember exactly when. It was within the past year or two. I believe it was a Christmas present. So I was pretty excited about that. And when I did rewatch it with my dad, like, I don't know, a year ago, that the opening music and the opening credits grabbed me and I was pretty excited uh, from there. So I've seen it a few times. I can't remember all of the times that I've seen it. But right. uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on Signs. And if you want to, make sure to stay up to date with everything we do. And if you don't want to miss any episodes, make sure to follow us through our social media platforms or through email. All those links are in the description below. And this is Shyamalan's fifth film. So if you want to start at the beginning, definitely go ahead and do so. The link to the Shyamalan retrospective is also in the description. So go ahead and click that. And if you want to hear some more bonus episodes that we do, movie commentaries, our thoughts and comments on the latest movie news and trailers and question and answers that we do, go ahead and support us through uh, Patreon. And after the show, we will talk a little bit more about that. But just letting you know all that stuff right off the bat. But yeah, Signs is actually Shyamalan's fifth film. And it did come out August 2nd, 2002. Just, if I'm not mistaken, a year after Unbreakable. Or was Unbreakable in 2000? Now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, No, Unbreakable was in 2000. So it was a couple years 
after Unbreakable came out that we got Signs. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, this this Signs came out, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, you said August 2nd, 2002. So, yeah, about two years. I don't know how, let me look up Unbreakable real quick and find out the release date. 22nd of November. So, yeah, roughly two years. They're about a month, about two months off, yeah. but. I mean, pretty much two years. Right. And as per Shyamalan's method so far, it seems like when he was shooting The Sixth Sense, he was writing Unbreakable. When he was writing Unbreakable, well, no, when he was filming Unbreakable, he was writing Signs. Like, he was pretty heavily into the script for Signs. And this is actually the first time, like, with Signs, he wrote and shot the whole film and, like, put it out and everything. And he... I watched this in the commentary afterwards. He didn't really know where to go from here. He had like, what do I do? I haven't been writing down my ideas. I haven't been even writing them down or working on a script. So he was kind of like wondering where he would go after signs. And we'll definitely talk about that more next week when we review The Village. And we'll see kind of where Shyamalan's ideas came from there. But nevertheless, Shyamalan, there would be some serious hype around this film considering how huge the sixth sense was and then unbreakable was such a strong follow-up and with people like frank marshall and kathleen kennedy backing you and believing in like everything you do from this point forward you're pretty much set so audiences would have been uh fairly excited to see signs in 2002 it did meet a little bit of uh some production woes the first one was they were supposed to start shooting on September 11th, 2001, which as most of you know, I'm sure our listeners around the world know as well, is 9-11 when the two World Trade Centers attacked. And that was pretty difficult to, not because they were meeting any roadblocks, but just morale in the country was pretty low. And the first uh, scene they shot for the movie Well, I guess I can't spoil it here yet, but let's just say it's a tragic death scene. And that was the first scene they shot, but they, it was, it was pretty, pretty difficult. Um, but they talked about having like this candlelight vigil and they were trying to like boost morale and make it go really well. But, uh, yeah, other than that, you can see that would have been a little hard to start a movie off on. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. It, that's a really unfortunate date that it was planned to start on September 11th. Uh, yeah, I can see why that would kind of cause it. Because at least for the last two movies, they've come a year after the previous one was released. So uh, Sixth Sense was released in 1999 and Unbreakable in 2000. So in reality, the next movie probably should have been released earlier in 2002, if I'm, um, if I'm, if I'm correct here. But because of September 11th, they had to push that back a bit to uh closer to beginning of august but yeah i can see why uh something like that would cause a halt in the production but it seems like it wasn't too significant though two of the other unique things that did make this production a bit longer than usual is this film is shot in a very rural area and the cornfield they they had to grow that corn all from scratch right and so oh, yeah. they grew the yeah. corn all from scratch and the house that they live in, they built the whole house, everything um, onto that land. Um, and it's not just like a shell of a house. They built everything inside it as well for shooting 
um, indoor sequences as well. So that did take right. a little bit while going into production to grow a giant cornfield and build a house. Right, right. I know Interstellar did something similar similar to this. They actually grew their own cornfields, oh. and then when they were finished the movie, I think that they they gave the corn. Uh, I think there's some charity or, or something along those lines. So yeah. ne- they didn't exactly waste any of it. They mm-hmm. actually used it for something else later on. But yeah, I know Interstellar did grow their own corn for that movie because the beginning in a few sections later on, there is a bunch of cornfield, a lot of cornfield shots. Now, the film title signs has a dual meaning to it as well. We'll talk about that yes. later on. But... Uh, it mostly has to deal with um, the signs in the corn circles, as you can tell from the poster. And they really kind of got inspiration from the crop circles from the early 80s, some in the late 70s and a little in the early 90s. But So that would have been um, in the minds of audience goers at this time. Now I don't – like nobody talks about crop circles anymore. Yeah. I think it's a thing. Yeah. They're not as big as a thing as they used to be. And it's clear that Signs was the movie that came out that we got in 2002 is kind of taking off of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or ET. Uh, they're similar in the kind of alien y feel, um, although this one does take a dull personal spin on it. So, yeah, especially during the 80s uh, and even back a bit further is when the big UFO craze was going on. So you also have that to attest to. Also, this seems to solidify that Shyamalan is going to do some, like going to do almost a different genre with each of his films. Discounting his first two films, The Sixth Sense was kind of a supernatural ghost story. Unbreakable was actually a superhero film. And this is an alien film dealing with extraterrestrials. And it's kind of funny because on the Blu-ray, he had included, it said Shyamalan's first alien movie. And it was a kid. It was him that shot it when he was a kid. And it was really funny. It was this little tiny monster. He put on like a a robotic um, truck that he just like drove around his living room and he ran around from it. It was pretty funny. So... He did have that bit of inspiration to draw from as a kid is enjoying monsters. And this was kind of something he had wanted to do. Okay. So yeah, I, it's also, I guess it's kind of interesting to see a director put his own work back when he was a little kid. Yeah. I don't think you see that too often. You don't putting like super early projects before they actually got serious in the filmmaking onto, onto discs and stuff. It was cool. I don't know if I've ever heard of that. He did draw inspiration from three specific films that he did mention by name. One of them, I I absolutely could tell, and I even put it in my notes before I had even seen this on the special features. But the three films that he drew inspiration from were The Birds, which is the one that I clearly could tell he drew inspiration from, Night of the Living Dead, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, okay. I can see Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Not everything dead. I can see that one too. I haven't seen birds. Mm. Yeah, you're missing out. You got to see it. I soon. know. I know. Well, they all essentially deal with um, outside forces causing 
causing a group of people to just kind of band together in a continually smaller and smaller place. Right. Um, and that's basically the entire premise of this movie. Now, when the movie came out, it's interesting to know audiences' reaction and how audiences' reaction has changed over time. Because when The Sixth Sense came out, don't forget, audiences gave the film an A-. minus. They really thought it was great. Unbreakable, audiences gave a C. They thought it was pretty not good at all, which has completely changed because right. um, people really love Unbreakable now. But uh, audiences were much more receptive to it than Unbreakable. They gave signs a B, which is oh, wow, which is fine. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, not not great. It's relatively high, uh, at least in terms of the audience score. Because I know we when we mentioned that it usually it's like a B plus or higher than is considered mm-hmm. good by the audience. Yeah, I was a little surprised to see Roger Ebert gave it. A four out of four, his highest really? rating. Yes. Oh, he wow. Loved this movie. He thought it was, well, he thought it was perfect, actually. Right. Does he, he, did he give Unbreakable four out of four stars? I don't remember. Didn't, uh, I don't know if I looked that one up. He might okay. have. I, okay. But yeah, that is surprising that Roger Ebert gave this one that high of a score. I mean, now he's kind of become uh, the, the guy who more or less created the movie reviewer, if you could say that. Yeah, he is the essential icon for a movie reviewer. All right. Well, on IMDb, the film holds a 6.7, which is okay. That's yeah, pretty low. It It is, but it's not it's not as low as it could be, as some yeah. movies are, though. I would say that's more so um, just a tiny step below a good movie. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I find that to be a pretty uh, low score to, because, the, from what I understand, the audience, uh, especially the guys at the time, seemed to ha- hold this movie in a higher regard than that, than that kind of a score. I wonder if it's a thing that has just changed over time. Like, we kind of want, I mean, I'm curious to know what that score would be uh, maybe like five or six years ago compared to now at least. Yeah, that would be really interesting to know what that score was. I don't know. I I mean, as far as like as the entirety of Shyamalan's works go, I think audiences view this one more favorably than the rest of his works. But we'll talk about that when we get to them. I just know that his first three films are just considered like the big three. And he even like talks about that in the special features. He says... This is kind of like my powerhouse trilogy that I've just right. ran off of here. I'm really excited to see what I can do after these three films. Of course, discounting his first two films because those right. kind of don't count. Yeah, these are the these three: uh, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs are kind of the three that he's pretty much remembered by for the most part. Oh, yeah. Now, at least in terms of being a good filmmaker, <laughs> uh, it's the ones that happen after these that they kind of progressively get worse, from what I understanding. Mm-hmm. And eventually they get to, you know, The Happening and The Last Airbender, which are considered to be his worst projects that he's worked on. So, yeah. Well, this would be the last. This is, I guess you consider this is the uh, the M. Night Shyamalan trilogy where the works were actually really well done before things began to fall off. And I do think his writing has 
continually progressed with each movie and he has a really high caliber of actors working with him and also crew because Tak Fujimoto is back um, as the cinematographer. He was the cinematographer on The Sixth Sense. He was not there for Unbreakable, but Tak Fujimoto is back. And of course, James Newton Howard is back scoring the film and he has scored right. all of Shyamalan's films as, as far as I'm at least up to this point anyway. We'll have to wait and see for the next ones. But Right. Nevertheless, it's not just Shyamalan, although he does put right there before the movie starts, written, produced, and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Like right, yeah, these last, yeah, these last three have been pretty much very personal projects to M. Night Shyamalan. Because he's done, if I'm correct, he's done writing, producing, and directing in all in the last three. Mm-hmm. When it did come out at the box office, it was huge as... It's not surprising because right. it had a budget of $72 million. Domestically, it grossed $227 million. Foreign, $180 for a worldwide total of $408 million. And that is uh, really big for this movie, I would say. Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially with a $73 million budget. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, you want to at least double it. Um, and it's more than doubled it. So, yeah, made really good. A really good ratio of cash, four hundred and eighty million. That's really good. And it and it almost made back its entire budget on opening weekend. It was number oh, yeah. one. It grossed sixty million dollars at number one opening weekend. Really big. And right. it went up against it really didn't have any competition, I would say. It went up against um Dana Carvey's The Master of Disguise. Oh. Love it or hate it. I think I've seen it twice. It's kind of funny. Um, it also went up against Martin Lawrence live Rundledat. I don't hmm. know, maybe some live show. It's kind of odd, but regardless, the top five for that weekend in August was Signs, Austin Powers, and Goldmember, The Master of Disguise, Martin Lawrence, and Tom Hanks's film Road to Perdition, which is fantastic. Check it out. Oh yeah. Also, uh, Men in Black Two was in the top ten, and we'll be reviewing that soon. Oh yeah, a few weeks actually. Well, we could get into that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's no surprise to me that this movie came out as number one because it is in Night Shyamalan. The last two have been pretty big hits in the box office. Master of Disguise, that's one that I know has kind of fallen. Uh, I, actually, I'm not entirely sure what the reaction was when it first released. I just know that now it's only considered to be eh at best by most people. But I, I've only seen bits and pieces of it. I don't think I've seen it all the way through. But I do remember seeing the trailer for it when I was a kid. Now, it was in the theater for a pretty long time. It was in the theater for six months. It crossed oh, wow. years from fall 2002 to the end of that winter in 2003. I wonder how many of those were like specialty theaters or like reruns or whatever. Because no. I don't know how popular like second run theaters are now. Mm -hmm. But I know that they were pretty popular back in the day. So I wonder how many of those were like that kind of thing, like a rerun theater. You know, I don't know if I don't know, but regardless, it wasn't you. You don't mean rerun. You mean like a second run theater, right? Yeah, that's what I mean to say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but it's still pretty impressive to go from the very beginning of August to I think it was around the beginning of February 
is when the film left. So it ran strong for quite a while and especially oh, yeah. doing those box office numbers. And I um it had a wide release. This was I'm I'm certain the widest release of a Shyamalan film yet, and that's not surprising because the better a director does, the more theaters his next work will be in. Right. Well, I am ready to jump into the plot. But before I do that, listeners, we do want to give you fair warning. We will be spoiling signs right now. We will be talking about all the juicy details located within the plot of the film. If you haven't seen signs yet and you don't want the film spoiled for you, if you don't want the the classic Shyamalan twist as all of his films seem to feature spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause right now. Go check out the movie and come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about signs. Graham Hess, played by Mel Gibson, has lost his faith. Six months ago, he lost his wife in a horrible auto accident when local veterinarian Ray Reddy, played by none other than M. Night Shyamalan, fell asleep while driving and pinned Colleen's body, played by Patricia Callenberg, to a tree. Since the loss, Graham has left the priesthood and is struggling how to father his family without his wife. He does have the help of his younger brother Merrill, played by Joaquin Phoenix, but Merrill has problems of his own. He's not quite sure what he wants to do in life or what his purpose is, but the two have bigger problems to face. One morning, Graham and Merrill wake up to the screams of Graham's little daughter Bo, played by Abigail Breslin. As the two run through the cornfields, they find her and brother Morgan, played by Rory Culkin, standing in the middle of their cornfield, except the corn has been perfectly flattened into a crop circle. Not only in rural Pennsylvania, but all over the world, crop circles are appearing. As news reports of alien ships and even footage of the alien itself continue to appear, the family's superstitions and beliefs are called into question. One night after the children have fallen asleep, Graham seems to encourage Merrill that two kinds of people in this world either see signs, which are miracles, or just believe in luck. Graham no longer believes in signs, just in luck, and he's one of the unlucky ones. As the signs of an alien invasion become more threatening, with Graham chopping the fingers off of one in Ray's pantry, which inadvertently leads to much-needed closure between the two men, the family closes into their house and their relationship begins to fall apart. Right before the aliens come to the house, the family breaks down during their last supper, causing them to realize they need to face their problems. As the night goes on and the terror seems to never end, Graham falls asleep and dreams of his wife's last words before dying. What he came to view as nonsense, he can't help but think of why he dreamed of it that night. He awakens to Merrill explaining the aliens are being fought back around the world, so it's possibly safe to go upstairs. But once the family ventures up, Morgan is held hostage by an alien which sprays deadly gas into his face. Remember the words of his wife. Graham sees why Morgan has asthma, so the gas couldn't get into his lungs. Why Bo has a sensitivity to water, because all the half-cups lying around provided plenty of ammunition for Merrill to swing away. Commanding Merrill to swing away, Merrill knocks water glasses onto the alien's skin, eventually causing its death. While Graham runs outside to inject Morgan with an epinephrine pin and pray that he's alright. Morgan wakes up just fine, and they all, especially Graham, realize God is watching out for them after all. A few months later, Graham has returned to being a pastor as credits roll. 
So the, what's interesting is one the opening shot we have, which is like up the backyard, and we have some of the corn in the background, and then you have like the swing set and whatnot, and you see it's actually being shown through a window as the camera packs up that first time. We kind of come back to this shot a few times in the movie. Yeah, Shyamalan spoke about that opening shot of the camera pulling through the window, uh, kind of showing their entire farm. He was trying to go for a Norman Rockwell vibe of a perfect, clear, pristine vision of rural America. And we do cut to that shot at the end of the film, except the glass has been broken. Right. And it's basically showing that life, is, life isn't like in Norman Rockwell world. It's not meant to be cynical or dour, but it's meant to show that we can only have like some real sense of peace is through kind of realizing like our weaknesses and like life is like messy and difficult and we have to kind of like move on from that because this family is in a state of at least Graham seems to be in a state of denial not just denial about God but denial about everything going on in life and that's clearly portrayed with the aliens coming is how can this happen this can't be real it, it can't be real, but then they're ultimately, they ultimately have to come face to face with the aliens, just like they have to come face to face with their problems. So clearly in Shyamalan fashion, he can't just write a run of the bill superhero movie or ghost movie or alien movie. It has to be character centric and drama focused and the aliens right. are just kind of the backdrop to propel everything along. Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, everything is given a reason in this movie. Like they start, and some of them are kind of silly. Like, for example, when the cop comes around and they're inspecting the crop circles, and then they start talking about how the Olympic runner is here or something along the lines, how they escaped, and it could be one of them, and how they were the one, the Olympic runner, or maybe even the uh, neighbors down the street or the ones who cause all these crop circles. And it, you're just sitting there, especially with the Olympic runner part. It's just like, oh, like we're making up excuses that don't really make much sense. That they came, they seem just way out there compared to uh, maybe a more reasonable explanation. But given the circumstances, it's kind of hard to give good reasons for some of these things because they are somewhat supernatural. And I mean, of course, we find out later that there really are aliens. But even then, even after uh, all this is still happening and things are going down and the aliens are attacking, Graham is still finding ways to ex- try and explain things, uh, trying to give reason for why things are happening. I think it's. Very interesting that this movie, I mean, it, this movie does kind of live in the camp of everything happens for a reason, and it also very much explores that and how, uh, in Graham's uh, personal life and belief, and which is, and which, if that phrase is true or not, and I just find that to be very interesting that uh, this movie does something like this, where it, it tries to find avenues of explanation, and in some ways it can, and in some ways it can't, and when they do try, it just comes off as ridiculous at times. Right, and I do really love that element that Shyamalan does that with the writing here in the beginning. All of these characters are coming up with a thousand and one explanations. It's right. Lionel Pritchard and the Wolfington brothers, or it's Scandinavian high jumpers. It's right. just completely ridiculous stuff where the evidence is right there in front of them and they won't believe. And I believe Shyamalan is trying to draw the audience and the characters to a greater realization that 
like for instance when graham's wife was pinned to the tree she told him everything he would need to like know and keep in mind and he basically said that's all nonsense it didn't mean anything but come to find out that the evidence was always right there in front of them so aside from I just I just love the dialogue in this movie and the comedy is pretty good too like with the whole baby monitor scene and they're right. like wait we need to turn it up and Meryl says this is what the nerds want. Yeah. <laughs> um I, I do love how there's all these explanations and ultimately they kind of have to face them or they can live in denial which is literally portrayed by at one point in the movie towards the end they either have to live in the dark, literally live in the dark, or they have to yeah. go up to the light and face it. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Then this I mentioned just a second ago that this movie kind of lives under the phrase of everything happens for a reason. And at one point in the movie, uh, Graham is having a conversation with Meryl, and he says that there are pretty much two groups of people, and this is kind of paraphrasing what he's saying, but he says that there are two groups of people, people who think that the random, that seemingly random events that happen are happening for a reason and are considered miracles, not necessarily luck, or the opposite is true, where it's a bit more of a nihilistic approach, where people think that those random things that tend to happen are just simply by chance, and there's really no way to control these things or even predict that they're going to happen. Uh, and it's, and so he, there, him and Amaro are talking about it, and Amaro kind of says that I'm a miracle man. He tells a story about uh, like a backstory that he had about the girl that he wanted to kiss and how if he hadn't spit out his gum, he, she would have threw up all over him, you know? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that this movie takes this approach and we get, uh, he does say that he's kind of, since he's moved away from being a, uh, I guess he was a priest, right? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm trying to think of the, I can't remember if that was the correct term of what he was because I know we know he's a father, but um, yeah, we find out that he was a priest and because of his wife's death, he doesn't necessarily believe anymore. Now, it doesn't really give too much of a reason as to why he doesn't believe anymore, aside from the fact that his wife died. Usually, it's because, uh, usually you get the uh, the typical, well, why does God let bad things happen to good people vibe? But we don't really get that from this movie. It's kind of left up in the air as to why he, what the reason is why he decided to stop believing. But we find out that he is one of those things just happen for really no reason at all. And it, this movie kind of has two sides betting against each other, which is kind of like a deism and theism kind of thing where God created the, the world and just kind of let it run or God created it and continues to interact with it in some kind of way. Yes, I do really love that scene where they're talking to each other after everything, everybody has gone to bed and they're just talking there on the couch and they're trying to make sense of the world, especially where... The world already doesn't really make sense to him because it seems like Graham's faith is just built on a house of cards where I'm right. a priest and I've got a great life and God's going to take care of me. I don't really know that much about God or why he does stuff anyway because somebody who loses their faith that fast probably didn't really have a strong enough faith to begin with. Now, it's okay to question your faith and ask those questions and he seems like he um, – we get – bits and pieces throughout the movie that he is still continually questioning his faith or um, I do love throughout the movie how people still call him father. That's something he can't escape from. He is kind of like this uh, prodigal son that kind of doesn't really want anything to do with God, but nevertheless, there will always be something drawing drawing back to him. And also something, uh, one shot we should mention is in the very beginning 
where the camera pans and we see the cross has been removed from the wall. Oh, and yeah. We just kind of see the shadow around where it used to be. And the art director said he wanted to show how like our faith or you know, that element of our past, the way he described it is the shadow of the faith will always be with him. Right. That was something that he could never get rid of. I do love that scene. And it also is kind of how everything comes full circle in the end when he does come out of the bathroom and he has his priest collar on. Right. Um, But yeah, the film does kind of raise those more philosophical questions of, like you said, just random nihilism or is there um, some divine providence that there there is some greater plan that God doesn't necessarily manipulate these things to happen, but he uses them for a greater good? And we can talk about it now. I don't know if we want to jump into it right away, but what exactly those things are and how they're used, whether they like really work or... I don't know. Do do we want to jump into that or do we want to save that? Uh, I mean, I guess since we're here, we might as well jump right into it. Okay, let me scroll to the end of my notes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we come to find out that, like you were saying, everything happens for a reason. But I want to, like, stipulate that and talk about that a little further because I think sometimes people can take that the wrong way. And I think it could be interpreted as everything has been preordained to happen in a certain way, as if we were made by some computer programmer and he clicks execute and the code just runs how it's supposed to run without any thought of its own. Right. So I don't believe that. I don't know. Maybe that's what Shyamalan believes. That's not what I believe. I guess. And that's not the way that I really took it in the movie is that although it's it's pretty much driven home with each of these characters that there's something kind of odd about them or there's something in their past that's caused them to feel like a failure. In the end, God is actually going to use that to save them for the greater good. I, I'm going to say I think it's a bit cheesy how Bo is like allergic to water. So she's got like a thousand water glasses lying around. And um, the whole thing with asthma, I think actually is kind of a cool idea that works pretty well. Um, Swing away, Meryl. That's fine. It feels a little cheesy to me. Um, But I mean, I guess I do like Graham's where all she said was Graham C. And he really does need to, you know, see the things right in front of him. It's kind of like, we walk by faith, not by sight, and he was putting his things more so in his sight instead of like right. seeing through his faith. So I don't know. What do you what do you think about the whole thing of that? Yeah, I mean, the the asthma thing doesn't necessarily bother me too much because at le- I mean, at least he was having an asthma attack before he was captured by one of the aliens. So yeah. it kind of makes logical sense that he would have his lungs would have closed by the time the aliens sprayed the poisonous. The poisonous gas into his face. But yeah, the uh, Bo having the water. I, I guess it's kind of hard to call it an allergy, but I guess the sensitivity to water. I mean, they don't really ever explore that. You know, they yeah. don't really ever give much of a reason as to why she is this way, aside from her just kind of you know being a little kid. Um, it's it doesn't it doesn't work as well. Um, the wife saying, "See, uh, Graham, swing away." 
I mean, it's it's fine, but it also I think it also doesn't necessarily work too well in the context of I guess in storytelling. It's there are certain things I think work, and there are certain things that I don't don't work. For example, Bo having the water sensitivity just feels off. But then again, at the same time, you also have uh, Morgan who has the uh, asthma that I think works. But then you've also got small little things that are kind of throughout this movie, like the baby monitor that really only come up when the script asks for it. It's, it's kind of, at times it's kind of all over the place. I mean, it always, it does kind of wrap up in the end, but at the same time, I think that this could have, I think that this could have been executed much better than what we actually get. The whole thing about bow and water just doesn't make any sense. I understand kid, little kids have their own quirks. Like my girlfriend's little brother can't stand the sight of scrambled eggs and he doesn't like it if you even say the word eggs. But just this aversion to water doesn't really make sense. And it just so happens that that's like their only weakness. That's how they figure out how to destroy them. Why would aliens come to a planet that is like 70% water anyway or something? I don't know. (laughs) Right. And not only that, but there is also water in the atmosphere and and, uh, humans are made of water. I don't know. It's... The the water thing, I think, is one of the biggest issues I have with this movie because it just doesn't make too much sense when you really put it into the twists of the movie here, which in the last two, there have been a big twist and the movie's been built around that. And they do build around this twist, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it also doesn't make very much sense in the end. No, I don't. Yeah, I mean, the more you think about it, the more it doesn't really make sense why they would be hurt by H2O. And it's a little cheesy watching Joaquin Phoenix swing a baseball bat uh, at glasses of water to directly hit an alien, which will cause its skin to burn and ultimately just kill it. I guess that's I would say that's the one thing that I wish they could have figured out a lot better with the story and the script is made made the made the water either more of a compelling reason or right. just have written it out and done something completely different or give the water more more meaning for Pete's sake. I mean water right. is a symbol of rebirth usually, but as in baptism, which would tie in with the Christianity element of the film. But I just don't think that's really, really explored, maybe. I mean, if it is, it's in chunks. Like, M. Night Shyamalan's character said he's going towards water because they're afraid of water. And so maybe that's like, he's going towards his redemption. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to read into things that aren't really there and make it a smarter set device than than it really is. Right. I would... I don't know if they're going necessarily for a baptismal like uh, visual here at the end. Well, probably not. Well, maybe at the very like the last shot we see the alien with a where the cup of water spills into his head. I guess you could draw parallels to baptism, but I mean, water. Yeah, you kind of mentioned this a second ago. Water is kind of a symbol for life and rebirth. So I can see if, say, this is kind of an allegory about maybe a man who had faith and then lost his faith. And then as, because it wasn't too long that his wife died, that this movie begins to take place. I think it's like six months or so after his wife died and then he stepped down from being a priest. 
um, that this movie begins. So I wonder if one can even draw the parallel of it kind of being an allegory for a man who loses his faith. And then as he be kind of begins exploring different avenues outside of what he was used to, these different ideas are infecting his mind. And then at the end of the movie, that water kind of could even be considered a blessing is the one thing that saves him is this thing, this thing that actually gives a life, which ends up being water. So I'm wondering if that maybe that's what someone was going for. I'm sure that's a reading that people can bring out, but even still, it's not given. I don't think it's given the correct thematic uh, exploration that it probably should have had. The one thing that I do love is more more so the symbolism of his wife's death how she is nailed to a tree she's pinned to a tree by a car which could be very representative of christ's death and how his a lot of people took that as such a uh, horrible thing that he was dead and gone but you know as scripture says christ promised much greater things to come after his resurrection. So to me, that seems to be um, Graham is kind of one of those apostolic-like characters where he is assured of these promises, but he doesn't really believe them. And only until those like promises are fulfilled like then and there can he understand and believe them. So I really like that whole element of it. And also just technically how the flashback is told through three different sequences that we're given little bits and piece of, pieces of each time. And then um, the ending, kind of ending montage where we get this kind of weird um, centered shot of Mel Gibson's head where yeah. uh, he does remember back to his wife. It plays really, really well with the music. And James Newton Howard said that was at the time the hardest piece of music he had ever written was trying to bring all of those emotions into one scene it was a really long musical piece for him to write i do really like all of that yeah i think james june howard does once again a really good job here Mm -hmm. i don't he's a really good composer i don't know how much stuff he does now but uh yeah it is i do like that the wife is Okay, I'll say this. I like the fact that we are really aren't given a reason as to... like I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I like the fact that we're not really given too much of a reason as to why Mel Gibson's character, Graham, stepped down from being a priest and why he kind of gave up his faith. We, Aside from, like I said, aside from the wife dying, we don't ever explore the reasons as to why, any further reasons as to why. And I really like that because it... It, it leaves this element of his past that's just completely wide open for, I guess you can even say, interpretation. Like you can fill in your own gaps as to why he would have left. Mm-hmm. There could be a multiple multitude of reasons. But you still see that even then, it's this movie, I guess, is kind of prophetic in a way. Because you have these signs that is being set up by uh, the wife. They're at the very beginning before things really even start with these aliens. So they, uh, you have the, uh, the sea and swing away from her. And then, of course, every other thing that comes up a little bit later with the kid and stuff. It's it's interesting that uh, a movie like this that deals with aliens also questions, uh, or not really questions, but also delves into religion and Christianity and things like that and how a man can regain his faith through a seemingly weird, um, uh, a seemingly weird event, which is aliens, but... In in my mind, it still works to a certain extent. It does seem to be one thing Shyamalan likes to return to is an element of like finding your faith or redemption yeah. 
or finding your place in the kind of divine order of things, which he's done through quite a few of his films so far. But like ultimately the film, like the linchpin that centers around is redemption. And I think the reason, and I do love as well, that we don't go into why he left his faith. We just know that he's like, please don't call me father. I, you know, I know I kind of like really upset some people by leaving the priesthood. I don't even know what to do. I, I can't connect with my kids. My kids want my brother to be their dad. They this like got such a really tough family dynamic. But I think the family dynamic is written incredibly well. And yeah. one scene that I really love is when they all start breaking down and crying. And they to me, that just shows that um, they're not strong enough by themselves to get through life to make sense of anything. They need reliance on a greater uh, power other than themselves to get through all of these circumstances. And one other thing I will say about all of their things coming together for the greater good is the one thing that I do like is that it is meant to show that like God can divinely use all of the elements in our life for the greater good, even if they're strange or basically if they don't make any sense to us at all, or even if they feel like a curse, they can still be used for the best. So I get that's where he's um, going with that. So from the family dynamics to kind of exploring faith, I do think Shyamalan does a very good job of writing those things. Yeah, I think at least in these first three movies here, he's really shown that he can write pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think this might be in terms of writing, or at least maybe even implementing ideas. This might be more the more weak on the weaker side of the three that we've had so far, because sure. you are playing with this idea that. Uh, I guess not necessarily playing with an idea, but they're also you also have caveats here where uh yes, the son can have asthma or yes, the daughter can have a uh sensitivity towards water, but when you try to implement that idea, it comes off as not necessarily explored very well, which in reality and especially with Bo's sensitivity here with water, it's not really explored hardly at all now it's set up at the very end when they do have when the when that alien that's in the house does have water splashed on him it is set up that um there is that the water is the weakness so it's no it's no big surprise there but at the same time you know you have all of this background that you have to get through that really doesn't even explore much of this much of really of Bo's character hardly at all uh before this point and even even still so it kind of just feels out there than it does a part of the script. And I, like I said, I guess probably what he's trying to do is show even irrational things can still yeah. make sense in ways that we could have never foreseen or expected. Like we've already talked about, it's kind of cheesy and yeah. a little odd. I don't know. Maybe we're jaded because when I did see it <laughs> when I was a lot younger, I didn't really – I didn't really make much sense of it. I didn't really care too much about that element of it. So right. maybe he's trying to go towards all audiences. The one thing I've noticed with these Shyamalan films is kids are pivotal to the plot. Yes. With everything, honestly, except for Praying with Anger, which I'm not going to count, but Wide Awake was, I mean, the, the main character was a child. But, right. I mean, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable in this, there's always been more so a more so a male child actor that has been a strong lead. But 
introducing a younger sister is interesting because we've never got that. It's only been only childs. Now we have two siblings. So maybe in the next one we'll get three. Who knows? <laughs> uh, I guess. We'll I mean, it is out. a village, so I'm sure that there'll be more than just three. A village but. of children. <laughs> maybe maybe yes. it'll be children. Next thing you know, it would be. <laughs> what? Um, the one thing that I did also notice about the Shyamalan films is they seem to be getting a little more lighter, I guess, as far as um, tone goes. They do deal with heavier subjects, but The Sixth Sense was so heavy, and uh, yeah. it was just just with the topics that it brings up, it was also kind of frightening. Unbreakable was still that way as well, I would say, but this one to me in certain ways feels the most palatable that I could probably um probably relax watching a few more times whereas although I would say The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable like are narratively stronger films probably, this one does seem to be palatable and I'm wondering if this will be a trend of Shyamalan films from here on out where they just kind of become more and more like moviegoer popcorn audience fodder instead of these just really kind of highly elevated uh, character dramas that like deal with like spirituality and stuff right yeah at least in these last three um yeah redemption has been a very big theme in it and yeah you're all right they're kind of progressively and not necessarily in big leaps kind of baby steps, but they are getting lighter in tone. I would say really unbreakable mostly up until the very end. It's pretty palatable for all ages. Sixth Sense pretty much all the way around is uh, really, really holds that PG-13 and even kind of pushes it to a, to a certain extent. But yeah, for the most part, uh, this movie here that we have signs is more towards the general audience. But I think it also makes up for that uh, the general audienceness of it for also being more of a thriller and somewhat of a spooky movie. There are definitely some spooky elements mm-hmm. to it, although I would be hard pressed to say that it is a horror movie because I don't think it is. It's a pretty, I would say, it's more of a harder thriller than it is a horror movie. But still, it does have a lot of family dynamics in it. That's one of the bi- one of the biggest ideas here. Biggest themes is the is that of a positive outlook on the family. And even though I mean, you have the brother living with you. And even though you have, you know, still have two parents and two children here, uh, the mother is also still missing. So you've also got that to take into account. So yeah, I would say that it kind of, it kind of, in some ways, it kind of evens itself out because it is very much a thriller, but also has those kind of spooky moments in it. Well, I want to talk about also uh, Tak Fujimoto's camera work. I think it's really oh, yeah. top notch here, and it's fairly unique. I don't see very many movies with camera work like this. One of the things that I noticed quite often was kind of these wide angle upward shots that gave us the feeling of something is out there, but it's closer than you think because the way the house was framed didn't show the sky very much, but nevertheless, we saw the whole house, but it did make it feel really close up to you. And I also noticed that a lot of the times, uh, not, not all of the time, but Quite frequently, um, everything was centered usually in the shot, whereas, uh, Alan, you know the technical name for it. I don't know. But usually usually the subject is in like the first third of the frame, and then the two-thirds are kind of more so open space. That's just like usual right. camera shooting, right? 
Right. Yeah, that's called the rule of nines. Yeah. So there's a grid of nine squares, where uh, usually, usually you want to keep the subject because there is no technical center line with the rule of nines. It's just a left and right line. That's vertical lines. So usually you want to keep the the subject or the point of interest on either the intersections or on those lines. Mm-hmm. And very, I mean, not to say you can't center things in the frame, but more to say that when we look at an image, we're going to be drawn to things that are just slightly outside of the middle, which is in those left and right columns. Uh, so yeah, that that's considered the rule of nine. So yeah, you are right. It is very interesting that uh, this movie does use a lot of center uh, portrait shots instead of moving them off to one side. Now when, now when they're having a conversation, they will often move them off to one side. Because mm-hmm. when you're having a conversation, you want to have one on one side, one person on the other side. Right. But yes, you are right. They do do a lot of centering in this movie, a lot of uh, pretty close-up center shots of a lot of characters. And I really, I mean, I like that because, first of all, it does kind of differentiate itself from his other films while still looking great. But I think it does serve the purposes of what Shyamalan is doing here in the movie is kind of calling our attention to the reality of everything around us, even if we don't choose to necessarily believe it, see it, or look for it. Um, Like that shot in the basement where the boy is standing there against the grate, and then there's that alien hand that we didn't even see, and then all of a sudden it grabs him. And it kind of seems to insinuate, and that's that way with, with other shots as well is there's always like a subject that's held in focus, but there's something more to it that we might be missing, even though it's right there at the center of the frame. Yeah, yeah, that alien hand is a good example of things that you kind of don't really see until it's kind of, I guess, quote unquote, too late. Mm-hmm. Because by the time I noticed that the alien hand was there, you know, the jump scare had already happened and they'd already grabbed Morgan. It was pulling him back. But yeah, they do do that quite often where you have things in the background that you don't really see until, you know, like I said, it's too late. And then mm-hmm. at that point, it, at that point, some action had already began. And by the time you process it, it's moved on to the next shot. So yeah, they do that quite often, along with centering of the subject, which like you mentioned earlier, uh, I could also add on to that saying that it could also be, uh, you know, look at things right in front of you, not necessarily things that, uh, look at look at the things that are happening right in front of you, not necessarily the things that are not happening in front of you because it does kind of go with the big theme of uh the uh, everything has a purpose in this movie so yeah it, they it, i think that this is, i don't think this is necessarily um the best camera work from any of from these three Shyamalan movies i would think my favorite of these three right now has got to be unbreakable and that's just because of how distinct it is mm-hmm. but that does not don't get me saying that this movie doesn't have good cinematography because it does it has a very good cinematography the other thing that I think has improved is Shyamalan's acting. He's given himself the biggest part in any of his like widely commercial films. Oh yeah, I didn't even. That's the funny thing. I've seen some of these movies before. I have. I had no idea who M Night Shyamalan was. I didn't know what he looked like, so I didn't know that was him until I think the last time I watched this movie. I'm like, oh hey, that's that's him, isn't it? And then to that to this time, it made even more sense. Like seeing his other cameos, but I I think his acting's improved from Praying with Anger. Yeah, it, it definitely has. Um, I mean, since then, he's really only done cameos of stuff. Yeah. But 
Yeah, I think this is definitely his biggest role. And I think this is also probably the best acting job we've seen from him so far in the, I guess, five movies we've had, we've seen of his. Mm -hmm. Because not only, well, I mean, to be fair though, not only is he given um, a lot of emotions to display in this role, but he's also given a, a pretty important role as well because he's the guy who killed Father Graham's or Reverend Graham's wife. Yeah. So that's already going to come with a lot of emotions just from the get go when he when he has to approach uh, when Graham has to approach our this this character here is that he has to know going in that this is the man who killed my wife and we know that he lives with that regret. We know that M Night Shyamalan's character. Uh, I, f- I think his name is Ray. Yeah. He lives with this regret that he was the one who killed his wife. Um, and and it seems as if... We, we kind of get this v- kind of subtle idea and visual that he's... He said he's going out to the lake, but it's kind of implied that he might be going off and might be committing suicide. We aren't entirely sure. It doesn't necessarily give us a wrap-up of that of what really happens there. But we do know that he finds is the one who finds out that the aliens are allergic to water, um, and that he's going to at least he believes that they are, and he's going to the lake to hopefully get away from all this. Yes, Shyamalan has really improved upon showing, not telling. How we don't get definitive answers necessarily, or even I would say definitive conversations like their reconciliation. Where they kind of, to me, they do leave on uh, more peaceable terms. But I think it, this type of like writing plays more towards reality, where there is still a number of things left unsaid, and um, it's more so has to do with, I would say, finding that forgiveness in your heart than necessarily having these big dramatic scenes of people hugging it out and crying necessarily. Now, we do have some of that with the family, but nevertheless, I think the emotions more so speak for themselves than what he does with the writing. And and I I appreciate he lets those real-life emotions kind of continually simmer on the surface throughout the movie. I feel them, and I think he does a good job of allowing us to place our own emotions into the character of Graham without... um, directly trying to um, influence a strong way one way or the other, but still giving the character enough definition for us to relate to him and see why he would make certain choices. Yeah. And this might be probably my favorite scene in the movie because it's, you're having a conversation with the guy who killed, you're having the conversation of the guy who lost his wife Mm -hmm. and the guy who killed that man's wife. And they're having this conversation with each other, which they may not have even talked to each other since that whole thing happened. We don't really get an answer on that, but it, that's just the way that we're, we're, uh, we're led to believe that. Um, and it's, I think I, there's also an interesting line that Ray says, where he says, a man who kills a reverend's wife isn't exactly ushered into heaven. And they don't really, you kind of mentioned this, they don't really give um, as a reason as to why he's going to the lake or, uh, or not necessarily that, but more of, uh, why is he going to like for other reasons that he's saying or what exactly is going on here? But at the same time, there really isn't too much closure between the Reverend and Ray aside from him just kind of driving off. And it, it seems like the Reverend kind of wants to forgive this man, but at the same time is finding it hard to do so because 
the circumstances that are there. I've, I don't know. I find this scene to be very interesting and definitely my favorite in the movie. So at least up until this point, it might even be my favorite just kind of in general, uh, at least scene in the movie. Did you have a scene that was your least favorite? Because I have one, but I want to hear yours if you've got one. Oh, I got to think about it. I guess you go ahead. I got to think about mine. Okay. One thing that I've always found to be quite silly, I just never bought into it, was the scene with the baby monitor and uh, Graham and Meryl holding it over the car and the children holding it to the sky and Bo trying to climb on the car. And that always, it just kind of bothered me because it just seemed really dumb and Shyamalan in the special feature said, I was sure this scene was going to be cut. I just knew it was going to be cut. And he was like, I was trying to figure out a way to make this scene like really important. Like I'd throw in some line that they had to like keep in. If they cut it, then the whole movie would be confusing. (laughs) Right. And um, he also was like, we actually had a lot of difficulty with shooting this scene. Like it was just like technically difficult for some reason. So that whole scene just never sat right with me. I mean, the other thing that I guess I'll say just doesn't ever completely sit right with me. In some ways, I appreciate it. And in some ways, it seems kind of unbelievable is how the son, Morgan, is oftentimes smarter than most of the adults. He is more level-headed. He is more knowledgeable. He is more emotionally stable, keeping everyone together. And I think that is possible sometimes for a child to have those kind of insights where adults allow things to get in the way too much, whereas children have a bit more purity. I'm kind of thinking back to when children wanted to go see Jesus and the disciples are like, hey, we got better things to do than listen to you. And Jesus said, you know, these... You know, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these uh, because of their just kind of purity and innocence and the adults are more so jaded. So I can see he does balance that. But then at the same time, Morgan seems to be almost too uh, flawless of a young boy, whereas um, what was I going to say? Haley Joel Osment um, was, I would say, a much more three dimensional character. And the boy from the last movie was okay i don't remember much of him anyway yeah at least those two kids from those two movies actually had something that they could some lesson that they could learn really graham is definitely the main character here so he's given you know the biggest lesson we learn mero does have things that he needs to get through as well but aside from those two characters the two kids aren't really given too much time to really build their character up and find their flaws and start working towards a solution um, so it's really their focus is really on the two adults here. So I would probably my favorite my least favorite scene is yeah probably gonna be that baby monitor scene. And it's not just that one scene, but kind of every scene that has to do with the baby monitor. I don't really see why it needs to be in this movie. I mean, there why does it make sense? Yeah, exactly. Because I know that I mean I understand that it's there because. It, you know, it has, it kind of shows the interference and in how we, they understand, how they know that these are aliens and they're able, they're able to hear them. And they, at one point it kind of becomes their warning sign that they're going to, they're invading. But at the same time, the execution of this baby monitor is rather poor because at least in, okay, in this first scene that they have it, I mean, I can probably make sense as to why it's here, but then I think it shows it like one or two more times, maybe even three times. And it just kind of pops up out of nowhere. 
and just inserts itself into the scene and feels almost as if it's just there because the script asks for it, not necessarily that it was needed in the scene. So in my, I guess in my opinion, yeah, that, that scene with the baby monitor and really every other scene after that that has to do with the baby monitor feels like, I think what Shyamalan was saying is he was hoping, thinking he would get cut. Maybe it should have been. Yeah. Uh, two other scenes that I did want to talk about that have, the first scene more so than the last scene have stuck with me. And I'll explain why is when the children are sitting, he finds his two children sitting with tinfoil hats on, which I find to be hilarious. Yeah. And I find it more so to be hilarious when Meryl puts one on his own head and they're all sitting there watching TV. <laughs> and it's just funny to show how people, uh, no matter how like, because they're such realists, at least they try to portray themselves. No matter what happens, people will always result to some kind of superstition or religion to explain things away. Never mind, I'm not going to get completely into that. But the scene where he does come in and he finds them reading that book by Dr. Bimbu, whatever he calls <laughs> him, and they open up and they see that there's like a UFO burning lasers into their house and their house is on fire. Right. And there's three figures laying on the ground as if it could be them. I do think this is – I always found the scene to be fairly disturbing and ominous and foreboding, but I don't really feel anything comes of it. It To me, it seems like to be a bit of a red herring that this is what could happen. To me, I always took that as that's what what will happen. There's something much more ominous like that going to happen, but I guess it's probably – to me, that could be taken as like a warning sign if, if you continue in your mode of disbelief, then you're just going to just be, be killed and destroyed. You know, you're not going to really have much protection. But if you give into the faith, then you will be saved. I guess that's the way to take it. But I guess tonally, it doesn't seem to match up. Right. I can see that. It, I guess it didn't bother me too much because... I mean, at the same time, these books that were written uh, have are more to do with capturing an audience and looking more at the negative side of things than they are uh, saying, hmm, these aliens are here for good things. They mentioned that they could be here and do nothing or they could be here just to test and then later they'll attack. Uh, that aside, though, uh, I mean, at least this idea does come back into play a lot more than the baby monitor does because at least... Like with the news and stuff and how the kids put on the tinfoil hats and then eventually Meryl or yeah, Meryl does, even though he was quoted saying at the very beginning uh, that it's all just the nerds who believe in this stuff or whatever. Uh, it kind of just goes to show that sometimes the, I guess, simplest explanations are the ones we latch on to the, uh, the easiest because they're the easiest to understand. I do kind of wish they would have helped integrate this. This might also just kind of be like a nod to other movies like uh, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or E.T. or something like that. The other scene that I thought was, I found it to be silly, was when Meryl is watching the TV and they say, beware, this footage may disturb you. Oh, yeah. And they see the, the children in Brazil or wherever it is, see the alien walking around outside their house. And they start screaming. And then Joaquin Phoenix just jumps up and screams quote marks and he i mean he's just so scared it's so funny it Mm -hmm. it, to me it just comes across as just silly yeah joaquin phoenix um i think in an overall sense he does a good job but there are i think there are a couple scenes here where i don't 
think he does the best. I think this is probably a good example of him not really doing the best acting wise in this movie. Overall, I think he's good, but there, I think that there are a couple of scenes here where it's just like, hmm. Although I do like that we kind of don't really see the aliens, and I think they're CG. They look like they're CG, and if they, they are. are, okay. Well, they're not okay. They're not completely CG. There is a person standing there in a blue suit. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. So they're pretty much they're pretty much CG. I mean, aside from the movement, right? Uh, Still, though, uh, the way that they implement CGI in this movie is, I mean, I was a bit fooled by it. I didn't really know if it was or wasn't. So, I mean, they do a very good job at kind of utilizing the CG into the movie, where it's not super obvious that they are. Maybe if I watched it on on a high definition screen then I would have been able to tell more easily but I think that they I think that they do a good job at making making the aliens at the same time mysterious but also they implement it in a very wise way because it doesn't take away from having them too much in the movie and being clearly made out of CG yeah as far as Joaquin's acting goes it's pretty good I don't think it's as necessarily as good as in gladiator which he was oscar nominated for that the right. year prior um and the cg does look pretty good especially and thankfully they used it sparingly thankfully because cg would not have been up to par in 2002 no. or even probably when they're finishing the visual effects in late 2001 or early 2002 it, just around that time it wouldn't have worked very well but they did do a lot of uh, trickery and i know Shyamalan was like i kind of hate visual effects it's like really stressful and it's confusing i don't want to like mess with it too much it was kind of funny hearing him talk about that and he wanted to do as m- many things practical as possible that's why they said hey you think we could just like cgi a cornfield with signs in it <laughs> and he's like no you have to like create them all real and so they did for the for the ones we see on TV, I think for two of them we see on TV, they did actually create those themselves. And the the main one we see in the film, they created that. So that's pretty impressive. They at least took the time yeah, to do that. Yeah, but, at least the one on the TV had the, you know, the advantage of being on a, on a CRT so you can kind of mask it a little mm-hmm. bit. The other thing that I did really notice was how... Hitchcockian this film is how Hitchcock-esque this film is not only the score which I couldn't help but draw parallels to um, Hitchcock's opening title sequence of Psycho with Bernard Sherman's masterful score and this opening title sequence with James Newton Howard's score that automatically makes it feel like I'm watching a new Hitchcock film yeah and also, this is very much the birds. And I couldn't, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, when Shyamalan said it in the special features, I'm like, I knew he had to be thinking of the birds when he made this movie. And Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy in the special features are like, he's the next Hitchcock. This is Hitchcock, everybody. Don't you believe it? <laughs> and uh-huh. <laughs> um, if you follow like the, I won't give anything away for the birds since Alan hasn't seen it and some of you might not have seen it either. But if you follow the kind of the story sequence and the story beats, it's very similar. Essentially, there is something odd that goes wrong in the beginning and it's just dismissed as an anomaly. But ultimately worse and worse things keep happening so and like the scope of 
kind of like living and safety continually shrinks until they are completely holed up in the house. And I just noticed that because they they have to go into the city and eat pizza uh, to try and escape from their problems. And But it doesn't work because everybody brings up their past, including the worst past of all when they see Ray. And wasn't that scene funny in the pharmacy? Alan, oh, yeah. That was um, good. That was a good scene. Talking about like, how is this a cuss word? And they're like, okay, well, then it's not 37. It's... 77 yeah now <laughs> she's like trying to do her confession he's like i'm not a priest anymore leave me alone <laughs> uh very funny but they continually have to move out of the city and also when he does go to ray's house there's a very similar scene of when they go to somebody else's house and they find something horrible has happened there but right. i'm like this is so much the birds and i love the birds so but he does a good job. He doesn't rip it off. Don't hear me say that. He doesn't rip it off. He just does a great job of just tightening the safety net until right. it's just like you're just isolated to the basement. So it, right. it's good. Right. Yeah. I speaking of that scene that the scene where they go in <clears throat> the scene where they go into town, Merrill does talk to I'm guessing is a military recruiter. Yes. And we and it's kind of told to us that he was looking to join the military mm-hmm. that doesn't come up uh anywhere else in the movie aside from this one scene although it does help serve to us that uh he is, he was a baseball player and did kind of have two records of being the one who both who did a very who was a very great player but also struck out the most also told us by lionel so i mean at the same time, even though it it may, even though the scene, I, I like it because you know we are kind of dive into Mar- Mero's character a little bit, where he he's kind of questioning about going into the military, but doesn't really ever come back. We do find out that he was a baseball player, so it kind of makes sense as to why uh, he would be the one who wields the bat at the end. Mm-hmm. Although, considering what he does, I think it wouldn't have been too big of a deal if if somebody else did either. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that scene with the military office, I think, is telegraphed a bit too strongly. It's a bit too strong of foreshadowing, bringing up his baseball record and then swing away. And yeah, anybody could have done that, honestly, except nobody else was there. Graham had to deal with rescuing his son. So it's pretty much up to Merrill, which I guess kind of plays back into he wanted to join the military, kind of wanted to be a protector of sorts for the country and he does kind of protect the homeland but on a smaller scale he protects the homestead right um instead um yeah i guess the way that i took the military scene is you're right it doesn't really um come back into play except for he to me he seems like he doesn't really know what he wants to do in life and this is kind of his last resort and it also the one thing that i did like which I think is kind of underserved is how often they talk about Lionel Pritchard in the beginning. Oh and yeah. Yeah. They're just these incredible hillbillies that nobody, we don't ever see except in the military office. It just so happens. Um, one of the, one of the brothers or whatever is signing up as well. And yeah. supposedly he's kind of a loser. And then Merrill questions like, am I a loser? And then he doesn't end up signing up. So yeah. Right. I just wonder if maybe this idea, because I mean, I'm not saying the idea that him joining the military is a bad idea, because I I like it because it helps it helps get us 
helps us explore Meryl's character a bit more. So I, I think it I think it could stay without having too much of an issue. I would just wonder if maybe this entire scene could have just been written somewhere in the dialogue than having a whole scene, or I guess it's more of a montage dedicated to it where we have, or not really a montage, but I guess three intercut segments of uh, of our main character, Graham, going to the pharmacy, the kids going off to do something, and then you also have Meryl talking to the military recruiter. I always wonder if like this scene with Meryl could have been written in dialogue somewhere, but hey, it who knows, probably- you know. Yeah, I probably could have. I would say the whole entire sequence in general doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because for some reason they drop the kids off at the bookstore for them to buy alien books. And he goes to pick up medicine and he kind of sneaks off to the recruiting office and then they meet back up for pizza. Right. And then they just so happen to see Ray in town because I guess the, the kids haven't gone into town in six months or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, um, but otherwise, yeah. Uh, the one th- this has nothing to do with what we were just talking about, but the alien effect. I did m- want to mention this before I forgot. Um, it did kind of have a kind of a classic feel to it, almost how it moved. Mm-hmm. It did kind of make me feel some of that Ray Harryhausen, you know, Sinbad, Jason, and the Argonauts claymation um, type feel. So I, I'm sure that is Shyamalan, because I'm sure he grew up watching those kind of paying um, homage to uh, those because he he was excited to make a monster movie, but he really um, didn't want the focus to be on the looks of the creature per se. And um, that, I guess that's something else we could talk about is do you feel this film underutilizes the whole alien plot? It almost feels like that's not the movie he necessarily wants to tell. It's just kind of this convenient subtext like it's almost this more so symbolism or catalyst or something i felt like putting in the fam like focusing on the family a little more than signs made it a little unbalanced yeah i mean i think the i do think that uh shaman using this alien invasion uh is something that works for me and that's mostly due with the fact that Along with you know believing in aliens, it it's not necessarily something that can be kind of be proven. It's something that you just believe, and that's kind of what the whole film is going for. So it makes so for me, I can definitely see why Shaman would go for a more of an alien vibe with it, and using aliens as more of a vehicle than the topic, like in other alien movies in the past. So for me, yeah, I think I think it works on that level to use aliens than maybe something else. I mean, maybe if you use something else, you could have done something a bit bit different but i don't necessarily have a problem with him using aliens in this movie uh to get what he's trying to get out to get the message he's trying to say and finally the thing that i do love is he does become graham becomes a priest at the end yeah it's interesting that he chooses to set that in winter which i guess seasonally would just make sense um and also because it literally was winter by the time they were going to shoot that scene (laughs) um i was expecting if he was going to be more symbolic to maybe have it be spring just because of that re kind of that rebirth that resurrection that the whole easter thing that has to do with spring that's always been that way it's not that big of a deal anyway yeah but that he does become a priest and there's no other dialogue other than that there's to me that just shows there's nothing left unsaid now 
Um, yeah. The, every, they've kind of got everything out in the open and we've gone through with this family dealing with all of their tragic events and coming to terms with that in their life and um, just finding how to let God love them and just kind of figuring out kind of their own uh, faults. Just very uh, kind of a prodigal son type aspect to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting that Shyamalan decides to do with this all in winter, this entire last scene where you see him that he has become a father, a priest again, and is preparing to do his job. I think it's very interesting that it's in the it's in the season of winter. Like you were just saying, it would make a bit more sense maybe to have it in the spring for, you know, symbolic of uh, rebirth. But I wonder if maybe he's going for this idea that despite kind of being in the face of I guess utter despair. He was still able to pull himself out, or so was still able to get out of uh, the state that he was in. Perhaps is one a visual that he's going for. That even even after dealing with what happened before in the movie, he's still able to continue on in the face of what seemingly would be the end and continue moving forward. Maybe that's what it's going for. It is kind of it's kind of a stretch, but yeah. I mean, I do really enjoy that the ending of this. There pretty much are no words. It's him just dressing up and getting ready to uh, go back to what he was before when he was a priest and having pretty much a newfound uh, faith, more or less. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Signs? Of the three so far that we've considered to be the de facto of M. Night Shyamalan, I do think that this is his weakest movie. Not necessarily bad, but still rather weak when you compare them to Unbreakable uh, in the Sixth Sense. I really do enjoy. Uh, I really do enjoy how we explore this man, this who was once a priest, only six months after the accident and after he's kind of stepped down from priesthood. We see him kind of regain this his faith through a seemingly unrelated incident. Um, which ends up kind of being the opposite of what he believes the to or to be un you know unrelated. I really do enjoy that aspect, but I also think that it could have had a bit of a tighter script in terms of like the baby monitor makes just makes no sense. Uh, and some of the and some of the other criticisms that I've mentioned, I think could have you know, worked in maybe a little bit better. I like the family dynamics that we have here, but the two kids kind of feel like they don't really have much of a change from beginning to end. Um, it seems like it's just the two adults. There are things I really do enjoy in this, like how, you know, everything has a purpose in the movie and it's all of these signs that he has to realize is what is being taught to him at the very end. But I think the journey to get there has, is a bit more, is a bit rockier in terms of how it's telling the story than I probably would have liked. I still enjoy the movie, but I think that there is, I think it just suffers from some storytelling issues. So at the end of seven out of 10, I'll give it a, I'll give it a recommend. Science continues to prove Shyamalan's strengths as a storyteller are ever increasing. Not following in the same vein at all of his previous entries, but instead venturing into an extraterrestrial film, Shyamalan explores our place in the divinely ordered universe. The writing and acting amongst the family members is this film's strong suit. This family and their dynamics and personalities are completely believable. Without this cast and Shyamalan's witty and insightful writing, this film wouldn't be as good as it is. 
Although the camera work and parts of the story aren't as strong as his previous two entries, this is still a very good film. Upon this watching, I found the family dynamic to be a bit overplayed at times, where Shyamalan seems to be more concerned with making a high-level family drama with an alien invasion as the backdrop and at times the afterthought. I do like how he channels Hitchcock's The Birds by closing off the characters venturing into the outside world until they're stuck in a dark basement only to find their problems haven't gone away that easily. Telegraphing the characters moving to ever-deepening, darkening, closed-off locations provides a nice duality to their introspective beliefs they must face. Not to mention, this film presents a powerful Christian redemption. Signs is a solid, enjoyable science fiction film wrapped in a tight family drama with a solid Christian worldview. Signs receives 7 stars out of 10 with a solid recommend. But yes, as Alan said, of the three... It's just right on down the line. Six cents, unbreakable signs. Right. And I, I could, I wouldn't put it past anybody if they put unbreakable before six cents or vice versa. Sure. But yeah, it seems like so far with us two, those, that seems to be kind of the step, kind of the staircase. Six cents, unbreakable signs for both of us. And I will say the step between the first two and the third is not a large step for me. There yeah. are certain elements that just make those more of a overall stronger, solid film. Right. But no, this is still a very good movie, and I have seen The Village once. Have you seen it, Alan? No, I haven't. I think I know the twist, though. Okay. I gotta think about this one. There's actually, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, there's two twists. Okay. I think I know one of them. I gotta think about it. I guess I'll have to watch it to find out because I can't exactly remember. Yeah, well, I also want us next week to kind of explore the marketing because I know the marketing for The Village really messed up people's expectations for what that movie would be. Yeah, I do remember hearing about that. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of Signs. We want to know what you thought about the movie. Where does this rank on your Shyamalan scale? When was the first time you saw it? I watched it, like I said, at the end. This was Alan's first time, but uh, my first time was at the end of summer watching it at a friend's house. And all I remember saying, they told me before the movie started, the little girl is allergic to water. And I'm like, (gasps) what? And they're like, don't say anything more. Spoil it. So, um, something like that. I don't know. It was funny. But uh, we want to hear your story, your Shyamalan stories of when you came and saw these movies. And um, don't don't give the twists away, but just let us know your feelings, like your thoughts, how it kind of struck you in uh, your first time with all of that. And if you can't get enough of us, which, I mean, how could you? Then you could go to our Patreon page and just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, which you drink and it's gone too bad, your money is gone. I guess you feel good for an hour with some caffeine and a yummy drink in your tummy unless you make yourself sick. Don't do that. With this, you will not get sick, and it is yours to keep, so it is money well spent. And also that money that money goes to uh, us keeping the lights on here. I use that more so as a metaphor, but it does cost for storage 
and bandwidth. It's not free. It's it's kind of expensive, but that is okay because we love doing it and we can do it through your support, which we truly appreciate. And you also get something back. You get to interact with us. You get to do Q&As with us where you can ask us anything. You get to know our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers. There's been a lot of trailers coming out and a lot of movies coming out and you're probably wondering what do we think about it well the best way to do that is to support us through that way and also you will get bonus podcasts that nobody else will have access to except supporters even movie commentaries so you can sit down and it's like you're watching the movie with us turn up the volume on the commentary and uh, we're right there in the room with you watching it scene by scene talking about it so head on over to patreon and support us through that and just so you can stay up to date go ahead and subscribe right now share it with your friends and family we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you subscribe through facebook and twitter start the conversation over there uh, we got uh, some great things going on on those pages. And of course, if you're like me and you're very old and you love email, you love the snail mail, well, no, we don't deliver t- mail to your house. So just electronic mail. Then, but we do uh, do carrier pigeon. We do carrier pigeon. We've just introduced that latest feature. That uh, tier is at least $50 a month. <laughs> so I'm not paying any less. <laughs> but you Please can no. get it. You can get a personalized carrier pigeon to your house if you so choose. <laughs> Maybe I will put that up on the site just for fun now, actually. <laughs> if you pay us enough uh, money to do so. <laughs> I'll train a pigeon, yes. But um, don't forget to subscribe through Facebook and Twitter, through email. That comes to your inbox every Friday, so you can start off your weekend right by um, listening to our reviews, reading our latest articles, So go ahead and go through there, share with your friends and family. Once again, thank you so much, listeners, with signs. And next week, we will talk with you about The Village.